This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and it's the second Sunday in the whole of Eastertide where the gospel and the other readings are not focused on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so we're beginning now to prepare ourselves as we come to the end of the great 50 days uh, to Pentecost, that after that, we will be asking in a large way, and we're asking it throughout Easter time, what then must we do? Father Thomas Keating says that in Eastertide, and it's true for the rest of the year, but with a particular intensity uh, in the great 50 days, uh, to focus on three great theological themes. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And so today the readings uh, are focused at least too on God's love and its centrality in the Christian faith and life. I was privileged to be able to attend, not for the whole time, but part of the time, and I'm very grateful to those of you who were there. We had a number of people from St. Luke's, and they sat in various places uh, in the uh, parish hall at St. Andrew's to hear the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Catherine Jefford Shorey. And at the beginning of her talk, she said, I'd like us all to take five minutes now to sit in silence and to meditate upon the reality that each one of us is beloved of God and meditate on the implications of that. What does that mean? And her point was that because we believe that Jesus was beloved of God and the scripture tells us that, that by extension we are too because he is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. So I'll speak about that in a few minutes about the gospel and how we get a clear idea of what that might mean. But to think yourself about how beloved you are, how intensely God loves, forgives, and accept you. So, we meditated for five minutes, and there were people at the small at the table I was sitting at. Uh, we were then to discuss what it was that had come to us briefly. There were some at the table who felt that this knowledge and this reality uh, is is extremely liberating. And it brings to the person a new freedom and a new peace. A way in which we understand uh, the starting point for all relationship. And how we understand love that we reflect back to others as they do to us. What does that mean? And there were others that said, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble with the idea that we're beloved of God. I don't know whether I am, and I certainly haven't been taught that from the time I was young. Even being raised in, in religious families. Part of that, I think, is uh, we get traces of it today in the readings, uh, is that there's been a heavy emphasis 
on uh, our sinfulness and falling. You know, sin in the Greek New Testament is hamartia. It means to fall short of the mark. So there are a lot of people who have been raised with the idea that they have done that and they can't really see themselves as beloved because in one sense, I hate to say, their parents told them that. So what were you doing when you were raised? You weren't knocked around, I hope, for the most part. You weren't, but what you, you, you were... Uh, have you ever had somebody say, I'm very grateful to my mother and my... Uh, people say, well, you don't want to praise your children too much because they'll get a big head and then they won't be able to be good for anything. They'll rest on their laurels and they ought to just uh, move forward and to fulfill their responsibilities. So we understand in some way uh, that we're to be human doings and not human beings. That's the way we, we have been raised. And in the theology of a number of Christian faith groups, this is consistent with what they teach and preach. We are unredeemably sinful until Jesus Christ came and saved us through his death on the cross. There is no hope for any of us unless we accept that and understand it. And then we're saved. But thinking about being beloved of God, my goodness me, you know? So sometimes we think, well, we're here to do certain things. So I want to talk a little bit about love generally using, you know, the three-legged stool, uh, scripture, tradition, and reason. Talked a little bit about the scripture, the tradition, in many including our own. You know, it appears that in the history of the development of Anglicanism during the, the uh, English Reformation, that uh, first there were a number of people who were extremely beguiled by Luther. And then uh, they sort of switched and they began to think, well, Calvin is a more agreeable to the way I understand things, right? So John Calvin, who was a genius, just like Luther, uh, was concerned about all this business of total depravity and, you know, that uh, some will be saved, uh, God knows from eternity who will be saved and who will be damned. And so we're just in there. And some people, because of that, have real worries. They're worried. So let me say some things about how we might understand love in technical terms. First of all, the other thing I didn't say is this. Uh, this culture doesn't know the beans when the bag is open about love. And what most people are concerned about is being in love or falling in love, or if you're in love, how are you going to make it work, and what are you going to do, and all this stuff. There was a show on PBS and a book uh, some, a, little, a couple of years ago to, called The Brain in Love, right? So what are the chemical responses that are released by the brain 
that produce this state of love. Broadly stated, I didn't read this at nine, but I'm just taking a chance here. Love is an effective disposition toward another person arising from qualities perceived as attractive, from instincts of natural relationship or from sympathy and resulting in concern for the welfare of the person and usually also delight in her, his, its presence and desire for the beloved's acceptance and approval. From a religious perspective, love is considered to be preeminently God's benevolent love. God's love encompasses human love for God, God human love for the neighbor, human love for creation, and self-love. So my own opinion is, is that in this culture, we're mightily focused on what Herb Cain, the columnist in San Francisco in the Chronicle for many years, called the urge to merge. <laughs> right? So all of our thinking is focused around how we're going to get that working. Marriage in this culture is so freighted with stuff that it is impossible to understand it uh, clearly. We have vested it with things. You know, I'm an old stiffy. If somebody comes in and says, we want to write their own vows, kindly old Father Brewer says, nothing doing. No. You're going to have to use the vows that are in the Book of Common Prayer. Right? Why would he be like that? Because most people promise too much. Most people promise stuff they are never going to be able to do. And because they've promised it and they can't, they're in my office or in some therapist's office or in something saying, why hasn't this worked? Because I've projected on this institution a huge thing that it can't bear and won't bear and shouldn't bear. I guess there's a point of view coming through, don't you think? <laughs> so we have the first epistle of John that we read from today. And there's a number of things. that This is the only passage in the Bible, the only in this section, where we have the phrase, God is love. Right? It's the only place. And for the beloved or the, the community of the beloved disciple, which in biblical scholarship, uh, all the Johannine writings, there's a fancy word, save that one, because in some kind of com you know, conversation with somebody, you can refer to the Johannine writings. John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Why is that? Because they all talk about the same stuff in the same way. And so the most useful, in my opinion, of all three of the epistles is the one we read from today. My Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt, when we were talking about the canon of the New Testament, you know, what books we call inspired and the, the 26 or 27 books in the New Testament, and whether or not that canon should be cl have been closed, 
and whether or not we could add some of the other literature that we know existed and use, as a matter of fact. People who were taught this stuff, like I was, they, they know about these, these things. So he said, well, if I were king for a day, I'd throw out 2nd and 3rd John and put the Didache in. And you're saying, the Didache? It means teaching in Greek, and it is a wonderful early description of how the church did stuff. Right? So it talked a little bit about disciplinary questions. I'm using that term in terms of saying, when you come together and celebrate the Eucharist, this is what people have done. When we talk about the way the church is organized, we by now firmly have bishops, priests, and deacons. So we have ordered ministry for special things. And we understand the people of God having certain responsibilities and privileges. And that this is the way into this is the sacramental life, principally uh, uh, placed in the Eucharist, which we participate in each Sunday, and Holy Baptism, which is our entrance into this divine fellowship. And so the Johannine community believed that in that context, within their community, love should be the silent partner in all human relationship. My friend and mentor, Murray Hammond, who is the rector of the Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, I've told you about this before many times. He said, David, you have got to learn how to love your people. And he said, the aphorism uh, is true, the one that says, you have to love everybody, but you don't have to like everybody. And if you start from that principle, you'll discover that God will give you the graces to do that. At least from time to time. Right? We can all go off the rails when we think that we ought to be doing something or we want life to work in the way that we want it to work. And when it doesn't, we get all upset. Or we're very upset about the way people behave. And we wish they would behave differently. You know, there are a lot of people who talk to me about uh, being, when they're driving, what it is that gets under their skin, right? How upset you are at other people's driving or the incomprehensibility that comes over you when somebody's angry at you because of your driving. <laughs> and you can't understand why they're sore. In the YouTube video, I talk about all the time where Alan Jones is speaking at Grace Cathedral at the, at the sort of Episcopalian 101 they have on Sundays. He said, uh, the other day, my we own one of these smart cars, you know, these little tiny cars, and we use it to drive around San Francisco because it's easy to park. So we were driving uh, along somewhere in San Francisco and some guy in one of these dog houses that are being driven around these days uh, was up next to him, didn't see him, cut him off and almost got into an accident and beeped and shook his fist at Alan Jones and his wife. And he said... If I would have had a gun, I would have shot that guy. 
He's, he was the retired dean of Grace Cathedral, right? <laughs> but that's what can happen to you. This is what happens. And so many of us think to ourselves, how is it that we're going to be able to love people? Love is participatory in that we participate in the love of God that God showed for each of us. So you think to yourself now, how do I do this? What do we mean when we understand loving somebody? What are the processes? And Dr. John McQuarrie, the theologian, says, Love is letting be. Not, of course, in the sense of standing off from someone or something, but in the positive and active sense of enabling to be. When we talk about letting be, we are to understand both parts of this hyphenated expression in a strong sense, letting as empowering and be as enjoying the maximal, maximal range of being that is open to the particular person involved. Now, if you let someone be, sometimes the be part becomes challenging because they do what they want. And sometimes they do stuff that is not good for them or for other people. And here you are. You can think to yourself, if I love this person enough, they will change. This is what I have been told a lot in my ministry for people that I talk to who are going to get married. Uh, there's at least one that says, I know these are problems, but when we get married, that will all be taken care of. You know, I'll be able to work on her or work on him, and they will change. So when you let somebody be, that's the risk. But empowerment is also important because that means that if you love yourself, you can uh, let be and work on yourself. A lot of us have been raised to believe that it is not good to think about yourself or that it represents some sort of conceitedness or selfishness to focus on yourself. And there are aspects of it that can be trying. All of us know people who behave like they're the world's foremost authority. When I was young, I went to the Hungry Eye once on, in North Beach, more than once, but there was a comedian there by the name of Professor Irwin Corey. And he was referred to as the foremost authority. And he, was, he said, and after all, is not beauty in the behind of the beholder? <laughs> so people can get mixed up. And there are a lot of people in this country that are mixed up 
all of us, including me, we don't get it. We haven't got it. And we've got to learn how in some way to let be. I, um, this is a confession I have to make because I am using as an excuse a continuous search that I'm engaged in to find preachable material. And so from time to time I watch on Bravo the real housewives of da-da. Right? Now here are a group of people and all the different ones that are well-heeled, they have all the money they need, there are a lot of people in Los Gatos like this, you know, or Monte Sereno, where someone says, you better cut back on watering your lawn because your water bill is going to get very high. I don't care about that. I have the money to pay the, how much it costs to water the lawn. So I'm going to continue to water the lawn because I get to. Right? So between that and thinking that way, we're all walking around in evening gowns in the house. And then the girls, all these people who are all triangulated with one another in some way, it's extremely off-center. And they're uh, figuring out one, intrigues with one another, and they go off to places. You know, they have the resources. They go to Mexico, or they go to Amsterdam, or they go, you know, to Paris, France, and they're there for a week, and then they come back. And in the course of these trips, more intrigue develops. By the way, somebody observed, these shows cost virtually nothing to produce. And they reap millions of dollars in income. But think about the fact that for some people, that may be the standard they aspire to. And this is not the right kind of self-regard. The right kind of self-regard is to get in touch with human beings hardwiring. And our hardwiring, in terms of a lot of studies that have been made these days, is to be generous, to be compassionate, to be sympathetic, and to find the ways and the means to support people in the midst of their difficulties and in the midst of your own difficulties. You know, when you become willing to do that, what happens is your problems don't go away, but they become more manageable. And part of that is understanding that love is the silent partner in all human interaction. So this week, uh, remember that you are beloved of God, that God unconditionally accepts, forgives, and loves you, and that you can be an instrument of God's love in the world in all your relationships. And when you practice those things, you're the best kind of Christian disciple. Amen. <laughs>